Eyeglass maker in the Netherlands named Hans Liepersche attempted to patent, unsuccessfully, a design for a refracting telescope, a device that used a convex lens to collect and focus the light bouncing off an object the wielder wanted to view, and a concave eyepiece which then magnified that object so it could be seen more clearly. This early design was improved upon by Galileo, who had seen a description of the object in question, but never got his hands on the physical product a year later. Galileo made his own telescope, which allowed him to view distant objects with about three times magnification, and then eventually improved the design even further, achieving something like 30 times magnification. His telescope, like Liepershe's, though, was riddled with flaws and imperfections that resulted in often flipped, blurry, and distorted views of things. Distant earthly objects, in Liepershe's case, and astronomical objects like the moon for Galileo. A few years later, Johann Kepler came up with a telescope design based on Galileo's that he thought would provide clearer images, and Christian Huygens was producing such telescopes, which were much larger and less portable, but also a lot more accurate than those recent precursors, at scale by 1655. Isaac Newton built the first practical reflector telescope in 1668, a design that used a mirror to reflect light collected by a lens to an eyepiece, though he was far from the first person to theorize that such a design might solve some of the problems experienced by other designs, though he mostly built it to test a theory he had about white light being composed of a spectrum of other colors, a theory that was ultimately proved correct, but which in the meantime led to a new telescope design and some clever methods of shaping and grinding mirrors that would find use in other, later applications, including future telescope models. Achromatic lenses, which were shaped in such a way that they produced far less color weirdness and allowed for the production of shorter telescopes of the same magnification, were originally developed in 1733, but didn't reach production scale until 1758. A slew of other innovations reached the market over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries, with new lenses, new mirrors, new material-related innovations, new coatings and designs and production methods, arriving at a fairly steady pace, though never all at once in all locations around the world. So there were many solutions and proposed solutions for all of the issues that continued to plague the world of telescope makers and users. The age of large, modern, reflector telescopes began in the early days of the 20th century, and most research telescopes built from 1900 onward are of this type, many utilizing what's called a Cassegrain reflector, which has a main, large, concave mirror and a secondary, smaller, concave mirror placed opposite the main one, which allows the telescope to create a sort of telephoto effect. Radio telescopes were developed near parallel to modern Cassegrain reflector-type telescopes in the second half of the 20th century. 
though they first hit the scene a few decades after the modern Cassegrans. They got their start in 1932, when an engineer at Bell Telephone Laboratories was trying to figure out the source of some static that it was thought could interfere with radio telephone signals. He built an antenna system to help him pinpoint the source of that static, and it turned out that it was coming from space, and the strongest signal was coming from the center of the Milky Way galaxy. This was the beginning of radio astronomy, and just like visual astronomy, it has shaped our understanding of space and the galaxy and the larger universe substantially. But it's also led to an abundance of spin-off and descendant technologies here on Earth, and in a very broad and general way, has increased our collective perception capabilities. What I'd like to talk about today, though, is a specific reflector telescope, the Hubble Space Telescope. A bit about its historical and contemporary relevancy, and what might come next in the realm of lens and other information-collecting technology-based space exploration. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from Smithsonian Magazine, and it's entitled Retired NASA Engineers Return to Fix Hubble Telescope. On June 13th, 2021, the U.S. Space Agency, NASA, began to have issues with the payload computer aboard the storied Hubble Space Telescope, which is storied for reasons I'll get into a bit later. It took about a month, but the agency eventually figured out, with the help of retired engineers who actually worked on the project when it was being built back in the 80s, leading up to its launch in 1990, they figured out that the spacecraft's main onboard computer had shut down, which then caused all of its instruments to go into a kind of safe mode. They eventually realized, with the help of current NASA engineers, some of whom weren't even born when the Hubble was launched, that the computer's power control unit was the issue, and NASA was thus able to switch that unit's responsibilities to an onboard backup unit, reboot the system, and get the whole thing up and running again. Much to the relief of a huge chunk of the astronomical and larger scientific community, Not to mention more than a few casual space enthusiasts who have enjoyed and found inspiration in the images produced by the Hubble over the course of its three-decade-plus lifespan. That's a lifespan, by the way, that is more than double the originally intended period of service for this craft. The Hubble was only intended to last 15 years, and now that it's been in operation for about 31 there was a creeping suspicion that this might be it. And that's especially the case now, long after its final scheduled servicing mission, which took place in mid-2009. Which means in practice that if something goes wrong with the Hubble, if we can fix it here from Earth with a tweak, a software update, something along those lines, we're in good shape. But if something goes wrong with the hardware that we can't fix remotely, there's no clear way to do anything about it. 
Those repair missions require that astronauts fly up into space and actually climb around on this 43 by 14 foot, which is about 13.2 meter by 4.2 meter telescope, which weighs around 24,490 pounds, which is about 11,110 kilograms. And they have to do surgery on that beast of a telescope, which contains some incredibly precise, easy-to-damage components, like the main mirror, which took a few years just to polish to get it ready. So if this had turned out to be an issue, that couldn't have been solved with a remote software workaround. We very well might have been giving the Hubble a final thanks for its long years of service, rather than welcoming it back and receiving a flurry of new images and astronomical evidence over the past few weeks. And among those images, released just days after the fix was announced, is a striking new collection of images showing galaxies in a relatively nearby galactic cluster, memorably called MACSJ0138.0-2155, being distorted by gravitational lensing, an effect that can mess with the light that we receive that shows us these massive interstellar things warping and distorting and in some cases duplicating the objects that are actually there by the time the light reaches us. We also got some images of objects far closer to home, from Jupiter's moon, Ganymede. These images show evidence of water vapor in this moon's atmosphere, which, although it's still only circumstantial evidence because of the distance involved, will need to send a flyby at some point to actually collect some vapor, to be sure. Despite that, this is still quite a big deal because it's another data point indicating that water might be more common throughout our solar system than we originally thought which could have very big and important implications for future plans to explore and maybe even set up bases on or around some of these heavenly bodies. That's not bad, considering what the Hubble is working with in terms of its hardware capabilities. The Hubble is currently rocking an Intel 486 computer, which has a whopping 25 megahertz of processing power. And this is a very imperfect comparison for a variety of reasons, but it provides a sense of the orders of magnitude difference that we're talking about here, I think. But for rough comparison, an iPhone 12 Pro smartphone has a 6-core 3.1 gigahertz processor, and there's 1,000 megahertz to a gigahertz. So that's 6 cores, each of which is 3,100 megahertz speedy in a modern, as of 2021, smartphone, compared to the 25 megahertz computer currently in the Hubble. And that's actually the updated, upgraded computer that was installed aboard the telescope in 1999 on Service Mission 3. The original computer on the Hubble, when it was first launched, in 1990, wielded a mere 1.25 megahertz of power, which again is compared to six cores, each of which has 3,100 megahertz of power in a modern smartphone. That is how space things tend to work. The digital tech 
in particular, tends to be a bit outdated, even by the standards of the year in which it was launched, because the folks doing the launching want something that is tried and tested, so there aren't any known glitches with that hardware in the wild, but also so that it's been around long enough to have had a hardened version made, meaning a version that can survive in the radiation-heavy environment of space. Alongside those fairly meager tech specs, though, the Hubble initially launched with a handful of impressive scientific instruments, including the Wide Field and Planetary Camera, the Goddard High-Resolution Spectrograph, the High-Speed Photometer, the Faint Object Camera, and the Faint Object Spectrograph. These devices utilized very high-end-for-the-time imaging technologies that allowed the Hubble to detect and create image data of all sorts of very distant, blurry, and otherwise unseeable things out in space. And because the Hubble was based in orbit around the planet, it could do all of this imaging without the distortions afflicting Earth-based telescopes caused by the atmosphere and other such planetary complications, while also being able to run a collection of sensors that allow it to precisely track the movement of stars and other objects through space over time. Over the course of the Hubble's four servicing missions, it received updated versions of its initial instruments, plus another eight instruments that granted it additional or augmented imaging and sensing powers. It also received new power components, like solar panels and batteries, new fundamental bits and bobs like gyroscopes and control units, and a few new optical components that corrected a 2200 nanometer imprecision in the grinding of its mirror, which initially, for its first few years in service, caused it to produce far blurrier and less precise images than it would have otherwise been capable of making all of which made very clear the major trade-off in building telescopes meant to be positioned in space. They get more useful and precise if you can put them out beyond the atmosphere, but the further you go, the more difficult and expensive it is to fix any issues that might arise. These problems, and the potential benefits of solving them, or at least accounting for them, were first recognized in a practical way with the launch of the U.S. Orbiting Astronomical Observatory and the Orbiting Astronomical Observatory 2. A pair of early space laboratories and pseudo-space stations that had space telescopes aboard that were launched in 1968 and which were part of a collection of four such space laboratories, two of which failed, but the other two of which demonstrated that being able to see things from orbit was great, and that it might be prudent to test even more stuff up there, because it was tricky to do even fundamental things, and nothing worked quite the way folks on the ground expected them to, which was part of the impetus of eventually creating a long-term space station in orbit, in the shape of the International Space Station, but which also led to the development of the Hubble. The Soviets also launched a space telescope around that same time, one of which, the Orion 1, was based on the Salyut 1, which was the world's first orbital space station. And they, too, recognized the value of having imagery technology up in orbit, 
especially when it came to detecting distant objects using ultraviolet radiation, which helps a whole lot with the detection of distant stars that don't show up terribly well within the spectrum of radiation that is naturally visible to humans in the form of light. Despite all those upgrades, though, as I mentioned, the Hubble is considered to be on its last legs, and though it's thought that it could last another decade or more, it's expected to be pulled into the Earth's atmosphere, where it will break up and burn up sometime between 2028 and 2040. And there's a good chance that NASA would send up some kind of small craft to help it deorbit in a safe way, so that it would break up over the ocean rather than a human-inhabited area, just in case any of the larger pieces actually made it through the atmosphere down to Earth. They actually installed what's called a soft capture mechanism, which is kind of like a fancy universal handle that would allow other craft to latch onto it securely, either pushing or dragging it into the atmosphere at the right time and place, once it either dies completely or once it's clear that its final descent has begun. There have been proposals by private U.S. companies to conduct new, currently unplanned service missions on the Hubble, and there's some speculation that a boost further away from the atmosphere and some upgraded gyroscopes and other fundamental components could keep it ticking along for decades into the future. Though the folks making such claims are typically associated with one of these private companies that have emerged in the past decade or so, like the Sierra Nevada Corporation and SpaceX. And these are companies that are wanting to be hired by NASA to conduct this kind of mission. So while it is definitely possible, there also could be some optimistic profit-based bias there. There's a good deal of public support for such endeavors as well because of all the things the Hubble has done over the course of its life. It determined what's now called the Hubble constant, which measures the rate at which the universe is expanding and which then in turn gave us a fair idea of how old the universe is. The best number as of 2021 is currently 13.7 billion years old. It also informed us that the speed of universal expansion may be increasing. It showed us that black holes are kind of all over the place. It helped us expand our visible reach, showed us galaxies incredibly far away that we wouldn't have been able to detect using any other instrument available at the time. It allowed us to snap new, super-sharp, up-close images of the planets in our solar system, helped us test hypotheses related to supernova, allowed us to determine the approximate weight and radius of the Milky Way galaxy, about 1.5 trillion solar units and 129,000 light years, respectively. And it has provided us evidence of exoplanets around sun-like stars and other solar systems, alongside the seemingly countless, absolutely gorgeous and inspiring images of space that have encouraged a whole generation of people to dedicate their lives to learning more about what's out there, and which has provided the rest of us a sense of just how small we are, and just how big everything, the universe that we're a part of, actually is. Fortunately, there are other space-based telescopes in the pipeline, and one of those is generally considered to be the official successor of the Hubble. 
the James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, will be about half the overall mass of the Hubble. But its main mirror will have a light collection area about six times larger than that of its predecessor. The JWST is more focused on infrared than ultraviolet radiation, though, which is great for looking out into the universe and perceiving things that are otherwise tricky to detect, but less ideal in terms of the practicalities involved. The Earth's atmosphere absorbs a lot of the infrared light that would otherwise reach us on the surface, and if you put a space telescope in orbit that lacks proper cooling systems, the heat from the craft itself can essentially blind the onboard sensors. So this new telescope has a lot of clever innovations that will help it with these issues, and it will be located a whole lot further from Earth than the Hubble. The Hubble is in near-Earth orbit, which puts it at about 340 miles, or around 550 kilometers, from the surface of the planet. The JWST, in comparison, will be located near what's called the L2 Lagrange point between the Earth and the Sun, a location in space where the gravities between these two bodies are approximately balanced, which makes it easier to keep such craft in a stable location between those two bodies, the Earth and the Sun. That Lagrange point, though, is about 930,000 miles, or about 1,500,000 kilometers from Earth's orbit. So it's that far from the Hubble, basically, which again is a mere 340 miles or 550 kilometers from the Earth's surface. Think about all of the problems involved with repairing something that's glitching in near-Earth orbit then consider how much of a conundrum it would be trying to repair something in person at the L2 Lagrange point. With current technology and current space agency budgets, it would be essentially impossible, which is why although they built the Hubble with reparability in mind, the JWST has not been built with repairs or upgrades in the pipeline. And that means this project, which is approximately proportionate with the Hubble in terms of the ultimate post-delay, post-going-over-budget cost, represents a fairly major risk, a risk that could allow us to explore the universe in new and exciting ways, and a risk that could help us amp up our space-based capabilities, perhaps even to the point where we could go out and fix it at some point in the relatively near future. But for the time being, it is a substantial undertaking with gobs of cool equipment that will hopefully keep it cold enough to operate so that all the whiz-bang sensors and other imaging devices it carries will function at full capacity. Hopefully, it doesn't have a tiny mirror issue like the Hubble initially did. And hopefully nothing, not even some small thing, goes wrong so that it is dead on arrival at the L2. Like the Hubble, by the way, NASA has not produced the JWST all by itself. The Hubble had and continues to have significant contributions from the ESA, the European Space Agency, and the JWST wields tools and other tech from a slew of European countries, 19 of them in total, alongside the work that's been done by NASA. As of the day I'm recording this, the current plan is to launch the JWST in November of 2021. 
it'll carry enough propellant to keep itself in a stable L2-adjacent position for about 10 years, at which point it is assumed its operable lifetime will be over. And because it really can't be fixed or operated upon post-deposit at that L2 position, it's unlikely that the JWST will enjoy the substantially increased lifespan that the Hubble and quite a few other spacecraft of late, including several Mars rovers, have benefited from. It's hoped during that operational period that the JWST will be able to capture images from way back in time, as early as just a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, when galaxies were initially forming, which would be just awe-inspiring and impressive, but also potentially quite valuable data in terms of better understanding the universe. That said, there are also some other alternative plans that could result in more Hubble-like Hubble telescope descendants in the relatively near future. A group of researchers from the UK and Canada who have partnered with NASA and the Canadian Space Agency have recently announced, via the Royal Astronomical Society, their development of a space telescope launch technique that involves using a helium balloon the size of a football field, to carry a telescope that is very similar to the Hubble, but which, because of updates in technology in the years since the Hubble was launched, would potentially be even better in terms of the image quality it could offer. That balloon drags a telescope up to an altitude of about 25 miles, or 40 kilometers, which is around the topmost portion of the Earth's stratosphere. And from way up there, theoretically, this telescope would be able to look out into the universe with a lot less, and potentially zero, interference from all those atmospheric issues that plague telescopes based down on the surface of the planet. Such a model would also be an improvement over having orbital or even L2-based telescopes in that the crafts could be relatively simply pulled back down and upgraded or repaired. The cost of deploying them would be tiny compared to that of a space launch. The satellites themselves are estimated to be something like 1,000 times cheaper than those that are hardened and optimized for placement in the full vacuum of space long term. And the launch would be a fair deal more sustainable and less polluting because it basically just involves hooking a telescope to a big balloon, inflating that balloon, and then waiting for it to go as high as it will go. We'll see if anything comes of this, but advances in our capacity to perceive further and deeper into space, and advances in the technologies involved in such ambitions, both in terms of new technologies and in terms of improving upon old technologies, could mean that we have a good deal to look forward to in this area even if the Hubble only plays a relatively small, primarily ancestral role in that potential future. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction by Philip Tetlock and Dan Gardner. I found this book interesting in part 
because of what it teaches about superforecasting and the science, and in some cases the intuition or art that goes into coming up with accurate, or as accurate as possible given the circumstances and variables, predictions in different aspects of life and business and science and so on. But also quite interesting is the way that the forecasting industry itself, that trade, actually works. And I found that overall this was an interesting collection of knowledge to have in my back pocket when looking at people making predictions based on things that I no longer consider to be particularly compelling. Those predictions made in most cases by people who don't necessarily have any skin in the game either. They can go on making predictions that never pan out, but their profession doesn't require that they're ever particularly accurate. And that seems to be the case for a variety of interesting reasons. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Super Forecasting by Philip Tetlock and Dan Gardner. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. You can sign up to receive a daily email from me each morning in which I curate and summarize the news at onesentencenews.com. And you can feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.